Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turning four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time, Jan Bartlett, and I'll be here until six tonight. Today, Irish history prior to 1916 with historian and author Brian McKinlay, the language of litter with Neil Blake, who's the Port Phillip Baykeeper, the hero of Waterbirds, 30 years of activism by Laurie Levy, Oceana Gold, the Australian mining company, what it's been up to in El Salvador. I'll be speaking to retired Bishop Hilton Deacon. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when yet again we've had one of those moments when satire is a waste of time, wasted, if we bothered, by a serial contributor to the dilemma, our old mate Clive Parmagina. This time again over that nickel mine which hit the mine wall owing heaps of nickels to its workforce, nick-off workforce. Remember when it was pointed out Clive and the shareholders carved up the profits for years, but then discovered when it hit the wall, they had had no responsibility whatever for its debts. Clive said he had no idea how that worked, but we can rest assured his lawyer can explain it to him. Well, just yesterday, Clive made satire redundant again. The federal and state governments have done nothing to help these workers, he bellowed righteously, presumably in a pre-Easter washing of the hands rehearsal. What can we say? All we can say is the stranded workers don't see anything even slightly funny in the episode. Clive's belief in conceding government has some small role in the private sector like paying for its losses and after all he is a politician as well as a filthy rich bloated contributor to the national good bringing us to the democratic process and all this talk about an election. We're in election mode. The breathless press gallery experts who know the whole world starts and ends in the bowels of Parliament House excite us. Another opportunity to attach the strings to the puppets who will dance to the caring business class's tune for the next three years or so. But surely there is a chance they could be wrong, that we may never have an election again. Oh, if only. Because they also keep saying the election date depends on a decision by big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull. Note those words. Let's repeat them. A decision by Malcolm. So an election is no lay down misere. If there is, the forces are determining how the Senate will be elected, democracy allowing those with point naught 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 one percent of the vote to land on the plush seats, or democracy allowing those with a bit more support to land on the plush seats to support in turn the puppets in the other place. The Socialist Party believing shooters and cars and trucks and dear baby Jesus family people and the Democratic Anti-Socialist Party and other sundry mass no support interests should all be there to represent their point naught 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 one percent proven by its proud election of the dear baby Jesus lot on its preferences. While the caring business class party believes in any democracy that allows it to be the untangled puppets. 
But through this, the great business of government must go on. And we found our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers, sitting at a chessboard, having a friendly game with the Iranian minister for trained killing, Javed Zarif. I move this investment rook here. He pushed forward as she rubbed her hands at all this lovely, lovely money. And you now move one refugee pawn toward me. Certainly. And here's another pawn and another. Uh, but Javed, they're not refugee pawns. They are illegal. No proper papers, queue jumping, boat people pawns. Now it's your turn to push more investment pieces toward me. Oh, that looks like fun. What are you doing? Oh, I'm eliminating the pawns. It is fun. And they deserve it. Now I make this move, this big investment night. Good move. How many more no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people pawns would you like to eliminate? Uh, but in saying that, we must have guarantees. You can only take all these pawns if you guarantee to eliminate them nicely because our policy on no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people pawns is driven by our dear baby Jesus principles and compassion. Just recently, by the way, Julie received an award for her contribution to True Blue Aussie Cuban Relations. C can anyone tell us just what that contribution was? I, I would have thought she'd be likely to know where it is. And to celebrate International Women's Day, an arch-conservative Lord Rupert of Wapping Lackey, a so sorry, objective journalist and occasional caring business class party staffer, wrote a whole book just to lay the blame for former big supremo tiny a bit more for the boss's political demise, 100% on the shoulders of another arch-conservative woman. When thieves, so sorry, when arch-conservatives fall out, solidarity forever. When this critically important contribution to Troubadour-Aussie political literature will hit the throw-out tables outside our bookshops can surely be counted in days, if not hours. Who'd buy the crap? We didn't need a book to tell us what we thought of Tiny and Peter. Incidentally and sadly, the author, using the term loosely, the author, Nikki Sinker, came from a working-class Greek Cypriot family in working-class Dubton. I'm sure we've noticed increasingly a day that emanated from the gross exploitation of women workers, like our very own Labor Day yesterday, which once upon a time featured union floats and banners and workers and dangerous working class messages marching through the streets of Melbourne, Labor Day captured by the corporate cowboys as Mumba to ensure they keep evil workers with their dated rubbish about class struggle off the streets, all references to evil unions banned. Now, notice that David emanated from the gross exploitation of working women was largely expropriated by the elite yet again. How more women can become big caring employers or highly paid servants of big caring employers grossly exploiting those very same working women. Although Lord Rupert of Wapping celebrated the day in his usual restrained, objective way by featuring on P3 as his Wapping Sin IWD story, six women in swimsuits. Lord Rupert, he whose wealth was built on the sun in England and the truth here, 
that was its name, not what was in it, would never exploit tits and bums. He's a refined, sophisticated man indeed, an oracle, although maybe this is one one thing he didn't know. He, he was too busy being in true love on his honeymoon. Honeymoon number, oh, I don't know, I've lost count, but it, but it is true love. From a great man who by the day tells us what's good for us to unsophisticated evil. Yet another evil construction union official was convicted for the heinous crime of being an evil union official and worse, swearing at a caring employer. They're so uncouth, these workers, aren't they? And demanding union members be given preference in the lunchroom over good workers exercising their honourable right not to join a union. Speaking of honour, hitting him with a $9,000 fine and the union for 48 grand, his honour said such thuggery cannot be tolerated, denouncing behaviour designed to bully, intimidate and harass workers into joining the union. The top cop on the beat, Nigel Hedge kissed the bosses and the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, agreed. These corrupt, evil, criminal thugs have no respect for the laws we observe and respect. The laws we introduced, allowing us to bully, intimidate and harass workers sensibly, responsibly, legally bully, intimidate and harass into not joining the union. A union which, I repeat, has no respect for the laws we make. It's a disgrace, Michaela. They're out of control, Nigel. The very basis of industrial law must be predicated on the right of workers not to join a union. We must protect caring employers from industrial anarchy. And no need to remind you, Michaela, that also protects workers from being caught up in illegal, intimidating tactics over insignificant matters like wages and conditions. Matters best left to the caring employers who best know the state of their business, Nigel. Best know what's in the best interests of their lazy, avaricious workers. A good point, Michaela, good point. Exemplified by this big, super-duper, caring business class leaders gab fest this week, which told us the only reason, the only reason they want company tax slashed is because it's good for workers. Evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers are so myopic. If they know what's good for them, instead of making outrageous claims for crippling higher wages and conditions, which, after all, only hurts themselves, only reduces productivity, evil unions should be lodging claims demanding a reduction in their caring employers' taxes. If only unions and workers would cease being driven by greedy self-interest. One of the Gabfest participants, Alison Watkins of Rubbish, big supremo at Coca Killer Amakil, Amakil kicked off as a tobacco pusher and has moved into sugar laden junk food and drink, continuing its commitment to public health, for which Alison is highly regarded as a business person by her peers who recognise profit is profit, no matter where it comes from. Anyway, P3, Friday's True Blue Capitalist Review, Alison Proper advice for a 23-year-old daughter kicking off her career with prices high as possible waterhouse. So 
finally, we can be sure Allison is aware enough of the company's products that top of the advice list would be don't let anything, anything Coca Caramical makes anywhere near you. Good afternoon. Many thanks to Mr. Kevin Healy for his week that was. Let's turn to history now with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Today, Jan, I'm going to give the first of two talks. The next will be a fortnight from now, the Tuesday after Easter, about Ireland and its history and the specific influence of the Easter Rising on Australian politics in 1916. Ireland has a terrible history of oppression and conflict going back centuries. Like many small countries, it would be true of countries like Holland and Denmark and Poland, the Irish have been long oppressed by a powerful neighbour. In the case of Ireland, of course, the principal and constant oppression has come from their English neighbours. I mean, you see Ireland and Scotland and Wales as really the first victims of what I'd call English imperialism running right back into the Middle Ages. In the 1300s, for instance, King Edward II of England set off to conquer the Scots. and He called himself the Hammer of the Scots, by the way. Eventually, his attacks on Scotland met a tremendous defeat at a famous place called Bannockburn, which ensured Scotland's independence for about the next 700 years. The Welsh were conquered, and as a consolation prize, the English kings ever afterwards, right down to the present day, named their eldest son as Prince of Wales, though of course they're never Welsh. In the case of Ireland, its oppressions had a a double serving because at the time of the Reformation, while Scotland and Wales and England became Protestant, Ireland remained Catholic. So to the problem of Irish independence, and the English domination of the other Celtic people who make up the British Isles. And it's a very long history, by the way. The Irish had added the problem of religion. Firstly, there have been four great rebellions in Ireland in the last 300 years. The first of these was in 1640, at the time of Cromwell and the Civil War in Britain. Now, Cromwell led the Puritans, who eventually overcame the king and the Anglican church and imposed their particular form of Puritan Protestantism on England. If you want to know what Cromwell and his supporters were like, there's a nice current example, if that's the word, people like the Taliban. The Puritans were inspired by a a Protestant Puritanism of the most extreme kind. And the Irish were soon to have Cromwell's armies invade Ireland and try to crush them, mostly on religious grounds. In 1641, Ireland was conquered by Cromwell. Uh, One of the features of this, by the way, was the deportation of about 50,000 Irish men and women who'd taken part in the rebellion. Many, of course, were killed and executed, but those who didn't, the lucky ones, were... uh, then deported as slaves to work on sugar plantations in the West Indies. 
And the women were especially important because about 25,000 Irish women, many of them young and of childbearing age, were then given out, really, as a bit of a prize to black slaves on the plantations who had no women. Many of the slaves brought from Africa were male for obvious reasons. The Irish women then became their partners, hardly married partners. They were slaves too, the women. But they then became the mothers of a whole generation of mixed race people in places like Jamaica and Barbados and elsewhere. That was one of the effects of Cromwell's crushing of Ireland. But that didn't silence the Irish. 150 years later, under the influence of the ideas of the French Revolution, an Irish group called the United Irishmen, led by a remarkable aristocrat, actually, and a Protestant at that, called Wolf Tone. Now, Tone said, look, forget our religious differences. What we want is a United Irish Republic. This was in the 1790s. The French Revolution had been taking place for about a decade and the ideas of a republic fell very worthily on Ireland. In 1798, Wolfe Tone and his friends went to Paris and got assistance from the French Republican leaders who promised troops and they did send them and in 1798 a French fleet attempted to land 15,000 French troops in Ireland and by sheer bad luck for the Irish a terrible winter storm made it impossible for the ships to land their troops. Now the uprising in Ireland had already begun. The United Irishmen as they called themselves had to fight the British authorities without French help. And the result was a disaster again. The Irish were crushed. Their leaders, Wolf Tone among them, were hanged and beheaded. Many of the Irish leaders were sent as slaves again to the West Indies. Some of them were sent far away to the most remote place that could be found, and that was Botany Bay. And in the first decades of settlement in Sydney, a quite considerable stream of Irish political prisoners arrived. And next week, when I look at the effects on Australia of these events, I'll look at the rising in Sydney, one of two uprisings in Australian history at a place called Castle Hill, where hundreds of Irish prisoners revolted and attempted to capture Sydney, with the event, by the way, in the event, setting up an Irish-Australian Republic. Now, that was crushed too by the British authorities in Sydney, and their leaders were executed. Uh, Some of them were, their bodies were exhibited along the highway near Parramatta, wrapped in chains for days after their death. The whole uprising met particularly savage suppression. Now, in Ireland, uh, the defeat of 1798, you might have think put an end to the Irish wish for independence, but it didn't. Fifty years later, another revolution occurred in France in 1848. Before that, however, in 1846, Ireland had been swept by what was known as the Potato Famine. Now, one thing about Ireland, it's rich and green and well-watered, and you could grow enough potatoes to feed a family on quite a small patch of land. Nearly everyone did this. When they harvested their potatoes, they lacked bags and sheds to store them in, And the practice was to put them in a heap and cover them with soil again, and that kept the potatoes until you were ready to eat them. 
But in 1846, a disease came from the Americas. No one knows how, but the disease was common in parts of the Americas, from which potatoes had originally come. And the disease penetrated Ireland, and to people's horror, when they opened their stacks of potatoes in the winter, they'd rotted, and there was no food. And Ireland was swept by the greatest famine in European history. It's thought a million people died. Probably as many, Ireland was quite heavily populated, as many fled to the Americas or to Australia. There's a monument, for instance, in Williamstown to 4,000 Irish orphan children whose parents had died in the famine and they'd survived and they were brought to Australia by Irish groups here who raised money and brought them here and, uh, and adopted them really into Australian Irish families. An interesting example of the way in which the news of the famine swept the world. And by the way, if you want to look up more of this, there's a marvellous book by a British historian called Woodham Smith, and the book is called The Great Hunger. It's, to my knowledge, out of print at the moment, but the book's pretty readily available in most public libraries. It is the absolute work on the Great Potato Famine. Whole towns were depopulated, whole populations were destroyed. And the British government, by and large, was indifferent until the full extent of the crisis was revealed. And even then, uh, it was slow to act, and the result was a terrible, a terrible event in Ireland. Someone has said it was the worst event in European history between the Black Death in the 13th century, that's the plague, and the two world wars. Ireland was massively depopulated by this event, and many Australians of Irish descent had relatives who fled Ireland. My ancestry is with a Scottish great-grandfather who married an Irish girl he met on the boat coming out here. Like many Australians, I have both Irish and Scottish ancestors and some English ancestors too. But I think this would be pretty typical of many Australians of our generation. The potato famine generated another demand in Ireland for independence. And in 1848, another group called the Young Ireland Movement staged a rising because in early 1848 there'd been yet another revolution in Paris. It was known as the Year of Revolutions, 1848, and revolutions against dictatorships and monarchies broke out in places as far distant as Ireland, Hungary, Germany, Vienna, all across Europe, and in Italy too, where a famous Italian leader called Garibaldi emerged. In Ireland, the Young Ireland movement staged uh, an uprising to declare a republic. Uh, this is the third of, of these uprisings in Ireland, but it failed again. Many of the leaders were executed. Some of them were pardoned, but were sent to uh, Norfolk Island or Tasmania, where they went to the prison settlement south of Hobart, where there is a cottage named Smith O'Brien's where the uh, people were incarcerated. About a half a dozen of the Irish leaders were kept in Tasmania for some years as convicts. The failure of the 1848 rising following the potato famine launched yet another campaign in Ireland and over the next 60 or 70 years a series of new movements grew up in Ireland. One of the problems in the country was that much of the land was owned 
by absentee English aristocratic landowners. And this was resented by the Irish peasants who had to pay rent on the land that they thought they should own. They never saw their landlords. Their landlords usually appointed managers who ran it and collected the rent, and that was about all they did. People had to pay the rent and often go hungry if the seasons had been bad. So there was great resentment in rural Ireland. At the same time, a man called Parnell had decided that Irish leaders should run for seats in the House of Commons. Ireland, after all, was part of Britain, and the British Parliament had been reformed. And Ireland had about 60 or 70 seats in the House of Commons. Parnell swept the polls and came to, to uh, Westminster, leading of nearly 50 Irish members who would be a powerful influence in the House of Commons. Now, while these events were occurring in Ireland in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, there was a famous event in Dublin at a place called Phoenix Park. The British in 1882 appointed an English earl to go to Ireland. This man had been, Lord Cavendish, had been a secretary to the British Prime Minister, in fact, parliamentary secretary, and had married uh, Gladstone, the Prime Minister's niece. So he was very close, in every sense of the word, to the centre of British power. Cavendish was appointed to be, in effect, Governor-General of Ireland. And he went to Dublin with a, another senior British official, was received with the usual pomp and ceremony. And on the very day of his arrival in Dublin, having settled in his residence in the city, he and uh, his assistant decided they'd go for a walk in the evening in Phoenix Park, which is a lovely park in central Dublin, uh, which adjoined the residence. And they had been followed all day by a group of men from a body called the Fenians. Now, the Fenians were a terrorist group, in a sense, and the sort of ancestors of the IRA. Uh, they saw a remarkable opportunity when the Governor-General and his secretary, unaccompanied by any guards, walked into Phoenix Park, and there a group of armed men stabbed them to death. This became known as the Phoenix Park Murders and had a tremendous impact on British public opinion. In fact, it probably set the cause of Ireland back. The British Liberals had now come to the idea of what they called Home Rule, that Ireland, like Scotland today, would be given a, an Irish Parliament to run local affairs, but would still remain part of the United Kingdom and still send members to London to the House of Commons and still have the King, or in this case Queen Victoria, as head of state. The Conservative parties bitterly opposed this and they also had the support of the Protestant minority in what we now call Northern Ireland or Ulster. Uh, these were the descendants of Scottish Presbyterian Protestants brought over by Cromwell to settle in the north. It was known as the Plantation of Ulster, but it was to create another level of problems in Ireland because the small Protestant population in the north were different to the largely Catholic population in the rest of Ireland. They didn't want home rule. They had a slogan, Home Rule will be Rome Rule, and they didn't want to be part of this 
proposal of Gladstone's, who was in many ways a liberal reformer, and he led the British Liberals against the Tories, and with the support, by the way, of Parnell and his Irishmen in, in the House of Commons, the, the battle over home rule began in the 1880s, not long after the Phoenix Park murders, which probably set the whole cause back, in fact. Uh, at the turn of the century, in 1905, the British Liberals, after a long period in opposition to a Tory government, swept to power in a landslide uh, with the support in the Commons of the newly formed Labour Party, which had about 50 members in a parliament of roughly 600 and of about 50 Irishmen. These people in the Commons supported the Liberal government, but the Irish wanted home rule, which now became a, a matter of crucial importance in Ireland. The Liberals were determined to push through home rule. Ulster was determined not to accept it. And another slogan that they invented, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. Now, this was in Northern Ireland a promise, really, of something, well, close to civil war. And the Liberal government was determined, with the support of the Irish, to give Ireland home rule. The Tories and the Northern Protestants were determined to resist, and much talk took place of military resistance against the government in London in Northern Ireland. In fact, in 1914, a section of the British Army in Ireland made it clear by their statements, the generals, that they wouldn't go into Northern Ireland, as the Liberals said they would ask them to do, to put down a rising by the Protestants in Ulster against Home Rule. So Britain had come perilously close to civil war in 1914, and effect of this was to mean there were two islands. There was northern Protestant uh, Ulster, determined not to have home rule, and the rest, Catholic Southern Republican Ireland. The idea of a republic, of course, had been around in Ireland since, as I mentioned, Wolf Tone and the French, those who supported the French Revolution in Ireland. In 1914, Ireland was in a perilous situation. And only then did the British Liberals begin to think of a compromise in which Northern Ireland might have its own parliament. And so there would be two parliaments in Ireland, a Protestant-dominated parliament in Belfast, covering Northern Ireland, and a largely Catholic Republican government, or not Republic, independent government in Dublin. All of these would remain within the United Kingdom. They wouldn't be republics. They would still acknowledge the king in London as head of state. Now, that was the state of Ireland in July 1914. And in fact, the House of Commons was actually debating a, a complicated series of bills to carry this compromise on Ireland into effect when, far away on the other side of Europe, in the Balkans, the assassination of the Crown Prince of Austria took place in Sarajevo. And in his history of the First World War, Winston Churchill, who was then a young member of the British Parliament and, and then a Liberal, said that their attention was suddenly switched from looking at the map of Ireland to looking at the map of the Balkans, and within a month, Europe was plunged into the First World War. At home in Britain, 
both parties and many of the Irish leaders accepted for the time being the idea that the whole matter of home rule would be put on ice, as it were, until the European war was over. Now, nobody knew how long that was going to be. And so in 1914, Ireland was left in this curious state of hiatus as the European war began. But some people in Ireland didn't think that was a good idea. Some of the Irish leaders, the Republican leaders in the South, had coined a phrase. They said, England's adversity will be Ireland's opportunity. And they thought arising in Ireland during the war when Britain was distracted and occupied in Europe, might be just the moment. Uh, this would be the fourth uprising since 1641 in Ireland against British rule. And so many of those uh, leaders who felt that way set about in 1914 and 15 organising an uprising which finally took place on Easter Monday of 1916. And because of the worldwide spread of Irish immigrants, millions of whom had fled poverty and hunger in Ireland, the effect of the Dublin Rising and its suppression by the British, by the way, would be profound right around the world, including in Australia, where public opinion was beginning to move against the First World War. And the Labour government, led by... Billy Hughes at the time, was about to disintegrate over the question of conscription. And so the question of Ireland and its uprising and Irish and Australian politics would all intermingle. In a fortnight, I'll look at the effect of all of these events on Ireland in 1916 and the events which followed it, of course. And thanks to historian and author Brian McKinley. And staying with 1916 and Ireland... The State Library, together with the Irish Embassy, are presenting a public exhibition at the Library for two months. It's titled The Events of 1916. I think we all know where the State Library is, Swanson Street in the city, and it's open from 9 to 5 every day. That's the State Library, together with the Irish Embassy, presenting a public exhibition titled The Events of 1916. If People Powered Radio, an exhibition celebrating 40 years of 3CR. From the 18th of March till the 23rd of April, the exhibition will feature new work by contemporary artists, rare audio, 3CR ephemera, archival posters and photos, live on-site broadcasts and music events. Come along to the opening night, Friday, March 18th from 6pm at Gertrude Contemporary Art Gallery, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. For more information visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. In announcing the 2016 duck season, or more aptly called the duck slaughter, the Victorian government has reduced the number of ducks hunters will be able to shoot, but maintained the full-length 12-week season. This has angered many, perhaps the majority of citizens, including internal dissent in the ALP. For the first time in 30 years, the person known as the Waterbirds hero, Laurie Levy, aged 74, will not be on the wetlands. In December, the campaign director of the Campaign Against Duck Shooting, CADS, pleaded guilty in the Melbourne Magistrate Court 
of obstructing a game officer by grabbing his boat at the start of the 2015 season. He was fined $500 for obstruction and $250 for entering the water before 10am and banned from the wetlands for six months. Every year since 1986 I have interviewed him and we spoke just prior to the announcement of this year's season in what is a long interview. I asked Laurie first about the years before 1986 when activism and advocacy for animals began and developed. Well, I probably first started in the 1970s by helping Project Jonah, who were fighting to have whales protected. Greenpeace was the main group overseas and doing a fantastic job. But Project Jonah had lined itself up and lined the the legal side of it up by getting an inquiry through the then Fraser government, the, the Frost Inquiry, into whales and whaling. Henrietta Kay was running Project Jonah and she was a fantastic leader there. My role was to help them with media because I was working at Channel 9 in those days. The Whale Protection Act was passed in 1980, protecting all whales and dolphins in, in Australian waters. Then we started rescuing stranded whales down in Tasmania and that was in 1981. And within about three years, we'd been able to set up state and federal whale rescue programs. But it was a hard, hard job because, look, at the forefront of all the campaigns that I've worked on, the main strategy has always been media coverage because uh, coming out of the media, and I used to be an ex-cameraman, I still see the world through the eyes of a lens. Basically, all that media coverage helped get rescuers down to the the oceans to help save whales and and that was the key to it and and there were so many people coming down to try and help those whales that state governments had to get involved they couldn't ignore ignore the issue just staying with whales for a couple of minutes why do you believe or do you have an opinion of why they beach basically the only whales that, that get into trouble are tooth whales whales that have sonar they're usually deep water whales and as they're either chasing prey or swimming too close to shore, they'll often come up against, say, a breakwater. And in that case, they use their sonar, they know there's danger in front of them and instead of turning out to sea, they'll turn in towards a, a gently sloping beach. And of course, using their sonar, they don't get a reply, so they wind up getting stranded. Or it can be a sick whale that, because they're air-breathing mammals, a whale is sick, it'll often come in closer to shore to rest. And if it gets stranded, whales have very strong family ties. So all the other whales will hang around and wait for it, and when it doesn't come out, they'll go in to try and help, and you'll find they'll all get stranded. What happened when we first started rescuing whales, we really had no idea what we were doing. What we did have was the willpower to go in and try and do something. And, of course, in the early days, we failed and whales died, but we also had successes. Uh, What we found out was the best way to get them out. If you've got 100, say, pilot whales or false killer whales on a beach, then the best thing to do is get them back into the water, take them to a calm harbour, 
and you would often transport them on the backs of four-wheel drive trucks, etc. Put them in the shallow water. You have one or two people standing, nursing each whale, and whales react very well to people, and they remain calm. Where if they're in there by themselves, they'd be thrashing around and, and panicking. So you would cart all the whales. If there are 100 whales, you'd take them all into that calm harbour. You'd have people with them overnight, and you would start your rescue operation the next morning, and you would take them all out as a group. And often they were apprehensive about going out, so you would take one whale out and turn it round, so it would send out calls to the other whale, probably these distress calls. You would also have surfers on their boards all around, so when the whale started to move out, the surfers would keep them going. And there'd be a spot, possibly half a kilometre out to sea, where the whales suddenly realised they were safe, they were in their own environment, and they would start taking off together. And those beautiful sweeping movements were just terrific to watch. And of course, we'd always have a, a fishing boat on hand where we'd go out with the whales for about five or ten kilometres to make sure they were all out at sea safely. So the good thing is we became redundant within about three or four years. State governments now go into action as soon as one whale gets into trouble or a 100 whales. Hundreds of people, thousands of people turn up on the beach to, to help them. That's amazing, though, that com- communication between a small human being or a few human beings and that magnificent animal. Yes, there is an amazing communication, and even with the big sperm whales, which are 40 feet in length and, and you know 30 or 40 tonnes, when you're working around their tails, one swipe of their tail could just wipe you out. And even if a whale is thrashing around and you walk up close to the tail, they'll stop moving for you. They know that you're there, and they do understand that you're helping them, and they work with you. And also you find that when a whale's been on a beach for hours, they often suffer from muscle cramp. So when you first put them back into the water, they'll just list, roll over, haven't got full use of their muscles. So we just worked out a a rolling technique from side to side until they were ready to go out and you, you can tell how they're getting their strength back. You can see them adjusting to that and it's a terrific feeling when you're getting the whales out and I can remember one woman who'd been on the beach for three days there were hundreds of rescuers there and when the whales finally went out she was in tears and she said that after three days spending three days with those whales it was like saying goodbye to good friends who you'd know you'd never see again. Did you move straight on to native birds after that or were there other animals that you were involved with? In 1982 we managed to get the first prosecution for cruelty against two farmers in Victoria. They were shooting kangaroos on one of their properties and they were it was pretty horrific what they were doing. We managed to get the RSPCA to prosecute. And who was we? I was working with Neil Bethune on Whale Rescue. Neil was another cameraman at Channel 9. So we worked on the whale issue and then we went over to Kangaroos for a while 
we managed to score that prosecution and the two farmers were fined and didn't pay their fines and went to jail for a couple of weeks. So that was the first. When did you become involved with the birds? Did you know much about Australia's native birds? Um, no, no, I didn't know very much. Um, so who encouraged you? I guess it's a sense of there's an injustice happening and that's why the media is so important. It was the media that covered the whales with Greenpeace, especially in the 1970s and and the opening of duck shooting season used to happen in the 70s and 80s and you would see it on television and it would always birds being blasted out of the sky. So in... 1985, I stood for the Democrats down at Geelong and the election day was the same day as the opening of the duck shooting season. I got sick of handing out how-to-vote cards. So I went down to the wetlands, found all these birds, went back the next morning again. We brought out... There were a couple of people down there helping me and we brought out pelicans and ibis and spoonbills and... And I didn't know one bird from another in those days, but I I knew they were birds that were being illegally shot. And when I spoke to the wildlife officer from the Department of Conservation, he didn't show any interest at all in the fact that protected birds were being illegally shot. And in fact, he told me that he'd been out shooting on the opening morning of the duck shooting season and that he'd shot eight birds that morning and four got away wounded. And I thought, well, if a wildlife officer can't do better than a 50% cripple loss, what are the other shooters doing? And that's how I really got involved. And, of course, when you approach government with it, all the doors close very quickly. They don't want to know about it. So in 1986, we put together a small team of 15 rescuers and went out to the Geelong wetlands. And, of course, we had no idea what we were really getting ourselves into. It was a frightening place to be. I mean, in those days, probably a couple of thousand shooters down at Geelong, but there were 100,000 duck shooters outright throughout Victoria. We brought out a few dead birds and a few wounded birds, and we did something that was totally different. Duck shooting had always been about killing and maiming, wounding native water birds. We added a new concept, and that was going out as a rescue team to help wounded birds. So we took down a mobile veterinary clinic with us, and for the first time, wounded birds were rescued, taken to the mobile veterinary clinic. Now, you might say, how can 15 people ever be effective against 100,000 duck shooters? Well, it was only because all the media came out with us, and those stories went right across the country, and as well as Victoria, of course, and people in other states were ringing up saying, oh, I saw your campaign, we want to get involved in our state. And that's how it all kicked off. What have you learnt over those years about the native waterbirds, their place in the ecology? They play an important role, as, as all animals, all native animals do. Native waterbirds can't overbreed because they only breed up depending on the water and the feed that's available to them. But they've also learnt to fly long distances between states. And, and of course, the amazing thing with birds is they know where the water is. If, if you've got a drought in Victoria and all the wetlands dry up, they know exactly where to go to interstate. 
And in fact, there's a scientist working at Lake Hare at the moment because scientists have always known that birds somehow know that when there's water in Lake Hare or in Queensland, but they don't know how they know. The only other option, of course, is that they tune into the ABC every day and listen to the weather forecast or 3CR, but they don't know how they do that, and that's what they're trying to find out now. But native water birds have suffered, and my real interest was why should these birds be forced to suffer just so guys can get out there? And in the early days, duck shooters were using semi-automatic weapons or pump and shotguns. They were rapid-fire weapons, and birds had no chance. They were just a moving target for them to shoot at. So by all those images that went to air on television and all the stories on radio and in the newspapers where the media and the cameras could go into the mobile veterinary clinic and focus on the shocking wounds and injuries that those birds received at the hands of duck shooters, that public opinion changed very quickly. These days, the numbers of duck shooters have fallen to 20,000 in Victoria, 25,000, but they only make up 0.4% of Victoria's population. So duck shooters this year, for example, in trying to get the government to introduce a duck shooting season, and we're in drought, water bird numbers are at their second lowest level ever, and there's no breeding going on. It's a worrying time for native water birds, but of course duck shooters don't care about that. They just want their duck shooting season. But they're using the argument that they bring in a lot of money for regional Victoria, and they can't because they only make up 0.4% of Victoria's population. And what we've been saying to the government for 30 years, get rid of duck shooting and you can help regional Victoria by introducing nature-based wetlands tourism. You know, 150,000 Chinese tourists visit Phillip Island penguins every year. There are about 700,000 tourists altogether interstate overseas that go down to Phillip Island. Now, those tourists could be going up to northwest Victoria. I mean, most country towns are in trouble. Um, the latest regional government report says that regional cities are doing well, but country towns are doing badly. And most of the industries have disappeared over the years and they could have a major thriving nature-based wetlands tourism industry. But instead of doing what you want, they've actually gone the other way in lots of instances where they've made it harder for the rescuers to actually rescue. Yes, it's very difficult. Um, These days, rescuers going into the water to rescue wounded birds can be fined $886. And they've changed the times that you can be on the water? Yes, we can't be on the water before 10 o'clock in the morning. There's an $886 fine, plus the department or the game officers now can order rescuers off the wetlands for three months. So they're trying to get rid of the rescuers. And the reason they're doing that is mainly because they're trying to stop wounded birds from being brought out and they're trying to stop illegally shot threatened birds from being brought out because those birds embarrass not only the shooters but also the government. Both the Liberal and Labor parties 
have the same policy on duck shooting. There's no difference between the two. There never has been. In the first 20 years of the duck campaign, we didn't have a voice in Parliament. Labor, Liberal and the National parties all supported duck shooting. In 2006, when Three Greens got into the Upper House, we finally had a voice in Parliament. And even when Sue Pennycue in, in 2011 put up a motion in the Upper House to ban duck shooting, of course the Liberals spoke against it, the Nationals spoke against it, and Labor joined the Liberals and Nationals in speaking uh, out against it. So we only got three votes. So the problem we've always had is that the Labor Party, and even when they were in opposition in 2011, when Peter Walsh was the Agriculture Minister, Labor had the ideal opportunities not only to hit out at the illegal shooting of threatened species by duck shooters, but in 2013 you had the Box Flat Massacre of some 2,000 waterbirds, and that was up in northwest Victoria in Peter Walsh's electorate. The two landowners were old mates of Peter Walsh, and the 150 or so shooters who were there that morning that participated in that massacre were Peter Walsh's constituents. We were tipped off about it, otherwise nobody would have known about that massacre, and it forced Peter Walsh to introduce or to to investigate. An investigation went on for nine months, but nobody was ever charged. Has anyone ever been charged? Yes, they have. Uh, Shooters have been charged with shooting threatened species and by us being out there has forced the department now the game management authority to also book shooters for illegally shooting birds they've got to try and and make out as if they are uh, even-handed which they're not I i mean the game management authority as it's been set up is set up to look after shooters to give them duck shooting seasons of course Shooters don't care about drought. They don't care about low water bird numbers. They just want to keep shooting. And, of course, I think the the important and the telling thing, Jan, is that in 2015, leading up to the season last year, there shouldn't have been a duck shooting season. Most of the wetlands were dry or drying out. The only wetlands up in northwest Victoria that had water were those that had been artificially filled. But the minister, Yala Pulford, gave them an opening weekend with the full bag limit of 10 birds each. Only, according to government figures, 13,800 shooters were out right across Victoria on that opening weekend, and that's only 0.2% of Victoria's population. Duck shooting is a dying activity, mainly caused by the fact that the public don't like it and the culture has changed. But I'm I'm just disappointed with the Labor Party. We expect the Liberals to support the shooters, but the Labor Party equally is as passionate about supporting shooters and they can't revive the activity. It's a dying activity, but they're still keeping it going. Yet in other states they have banned it. Yes, Western Australia was the first state to ban duck shooting in 1990. We flew over there and we fought a campaign with the Western Australian Conservation Council 
And a few months later, after the season, Premier Carmen Lawrence put out a media release saying that in the 1990s, the wounding of native water birds, the illegal shooting of protected species and lead shot is no longer acceptable. As of the 3rd of September 1990, duck shooting was banned in in Western Australia. Then when Bob Carr got into government in, in New South Wales in 1995, he banned duck shooting. So it's not just the Labor Party all over Australia? And then Peter Beattie banned duck shooting in 2005, saying Queensland is now the smart state for looking after its native water birds. So you had three Labor premiers banning duck shooting. And, and in Victoria, the Labor Party had the same policy as... And they still have the same policy as the late Sir Henry Bolt he had, who was a Liberal leader in the 1950s. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with veteran animal rights activist Laurie Levy, who for the first time in 30 years will not be on the Victorian wetlands during the annual duck season. What always worried me was the fact that they changed the status of certain water birds when the season came on. Yes, well, nobody actually knows why the eight so-called game species are taken off the protected list and put onto the game list, just because it's always happened. And even birds like the Australasian shoveler, which are on the hit list, were taken off for quite a few years because their numbers are just really at the point of being endangered. But because of the shooters inside the department, the bureaucrats made the decision to put the shoveler back on the hit list again, which even surprised a lot of shooters. So everything is given to the shooters and there's not a single government department, even the Department of the Environment, that's looking after native water birds. And that's why we've been doing this job for 30 years We can't walk away because there'd be no one to look after those birds. Let's talk about some of the volunteers that you've been involved with over those years, the people that may be a bit outstanding or someone you've got fond memories of. The campaign has been made by the courage and the commitment of rescuers over the years because it couldn't happen without them. And, And I've always been amazed that people... In the lead-up to an opening of the season, volunteer their services. I mean, they've got to drive basically all Friday night to get to the wetlands. They've got to pitch a tent when they get there at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. But before that, they've got to have some sort of training. Uh, Yes, we have rescue training days. They come in, they volunteer their services. Usually we have three training days in in February and early March, and we go from there. But these days, all rescuers are assigned to a a team. So you've got the more experienced rescuers looking after the less experienced rescuers. Uh, Of course, in 2011, we had a rescuer shot in the face, and uh, she was extremely lucky to have gotten out of that Pellets hit on either side of her eye. She had nine pellets embedded in her face. And lucky it wasn't at close range. She was rushed down to the Horsham Base Hospital. They took pellets out, but 
pellets are still embedded, which they can't get out, which are too deep. But she was lucky she wasn't blinded and she was lucky she wasn't killed. And from then on, we, we were looking at giving the campaign away because the last thing we want is for a rescuer to be hurt. And the rescuers wanted to keep it going. So we went out to buy the best ballistic goggles that we could and just through a stroke of luck, we managed to get onto uh, an importer who brought Defence Force ballistic goggles into the country for our armed forces. And these are the same goggles that our soldiers use in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and not foolproof, but they're the best you can get. And, and we managed to buy 125 of those. The only reason they were sold to us, they don't normally sell to the public, was because they like what we did. And people come back year after year? Yes, people come back year after year. You, you know, we have vets out on the wetlands, doctors out on the wetlands to look after rescuers. Uh, we have nurses out there and we also have counsellors out there because a lot of new rescuers who are out there, especially for the first time, are traumatised by the level of violence and cruelty that they see being inflicted on these beautiful birds. And a lot of rescuers don't come back because they just can't handle the that level of violence that they see. It's just too upsetting for them. But a lot of other rescuers who are out there for the first time see the same thing, but it makes them totally committed to keep coming out. Is there also the threat of violence when you find these injured birds and the, the shooters realise that you're there to take their bird away from them, as so they say? Yes, uh, there are a lot of angry shooters out there, always have been, a lot of threats. The, the worst incident was a female rescuer being shot in the face. But it does take a lot of courage being out there you know, in the in the early days, there were no police out on the wetlands. It was a free-for-all. In those days, it it was really a frightening place to be. Lake Bull Oak in the late 80s, early 90s, used to get 15,000 duck shooters on it, Ten to 15,000 duck shooters on one wetland. That's when there were 100,000 duck shooters in Victoria. And they were using semi-automatic weapons and pump-acts and shotguns. And when we'd be out there with them, it was a frightening place to be. And I look back on it now and I can't imagine how we all escaped it without being shot in those days. But water birds didn't have anyone really other than us to help them. And, you know, we've tried to supply that level of service in helping them. But, of course, we only help a, a small number right across the board but because the media is there, it highlights the problem and public opinion has changed. And duck shooting is, is seen by the public as being one of those old male, macho, antisocial activities that has no place in a modern society. It's just that the politicians are, are as bad as the duck shooters, if not worse. An important person is Professor Richard Kingsford in your campaign. Yes, Professor Richard Kingsford has been doing aerial surveys for the New South Wales University for many years now, since 1983. And he's been flying 
every October right down the East Coast counting birds. And uh, uh, one of the biggest problems we have is that governments don't necessarily take his advice, even when, uh, like this year, Kingsford surveys uh, say that the vast majority of, of breeding wetlands interstate are dry, most of our wetlands are dry in Victoria, water bird numbers are down to their second lowest level ever since he's been doing his surveys and there's no breeding going on, shooters still want and are still fighting really hard. What's uh, their argument? Basically what their argument is, if there's one bird in Victoria, they can't kill too many. And they'll still want a bag limit of 10 as well. It's still this ongoing fight, but shooters are really panicking at the moment. They know public opinion is against them. They even write in their own magazine. The editor will tell members of Field and Game Australia to knock on their neighbour's door and tell them that they're a duck shooter and that they are normal people just like anybody else. So they know that public opinion is against them. That The other thing in 2009, to show how desperate duck shooters are to have a season, it was coming to the end of the long drought that we had in Victoria and farmers had been walking off the land. There were even reports in the media about farmers committing suicide because they couldn't get irrigation water to grow their crops. We went up to Gippsland. There was no water in the northwest so we went up and a week before the opening we managed to get onto Field and Games private shooting wetland and we found water going into it. There was water being taken through two landlocks from the Latrobe River to fill up their wetland. At that stage we didn't know if they had a permit or not but we figured they couldn't have a permit with so many farmers not being able to get irrigation water, how could Field and Game get, get a permit? So we came back. We knew if we had have told the government straight away, nothing would have happened. So we put out a media release and the ABC in Gippsland picked it up and I did an interview on the Monday morning and then they interviewed a Field and Game water manager. After those interviews, the good thing was that the water board up there uh, Southern Rural Water, the manager was driving to work listening to the interviews and he knew that Field and Game didn't have a permit. So he investigated and they were charged with illegally diverting water from the Latrobe River. They went to the Sale Magistrates Court on the 23rd of June 2009 and pleaded guilty and they were fined $1,500 and $1,500 in costs was a very small fine but we got them that was the thing and it was the embarrassment that feeling the game had to suffer after that are these the same men who go out into the wilds and and, and shoot at pigs and deers and kangaroos and are, rabbits yeah, a lot of them are a lot of them go over to africa they were really angry when the federal liberal government banned the import of canned hunting trophies into Australia. We go up and shoot a few crocodiles up in Northern Territory. Yeah, they'd probably like to do that as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mentality, but I, I think the thing that has changed is they know that the large numbers of duck shooters have gone 
and they know where the public stands on the issue and they can't change that. You got a lot of flack last year for equating the violence on the wetlands to domestic violence. Right, look, I still stand behind that. Uh, there's a cycle of violence. It, domestic violence just doesn't happen in isolation. When state governments are putting powerful weapons into the hands of 12-year-old children, Peter Walsh wanted to build up the numbers of duck shooters. So kids didn't have to, 12-year-old kids didn't have to pass the waterfowl ID test. There's no accuracy test for anyone, but they didn't take it up. And, and that's because duck shooting is seen as something you don't do these days. But I guess overall on domestic violence, we put a submission into the Royal Commission into family violence. And, and what I've said is that if Daniel Andrews is serious about protecting women and kids in the home, there's a very simple thing he should do. He should remove all guns from all Victorian homes and store them with the police. Then when shooters want to take them out, they've got to go to the police and the police know where every gun is. And you you hear so many stories of women who are in domestic violence situations being scared of the gun, even if it's in a cupboard. They know it's sitting there in the home. And women also talk about how guns are held at their heads. There are a couple of women who died over the last couple of years where their boyfriends had, their partners had guns and they brought them out, pointed them at their heads, pulled the trigger, then they used the excuse that they didn't know the gun was loaded. Guns are part of that domestic violence situation. If Daniel Andrews is really serious about protecting women and kids in the home, the first thing he should do is to remove all firearms from homes and store them with the police. And and also, it's well known now that by psychiatrists and psychologists here and overseas, that people who are cruel to animals often go on to being cruel to people. And, of course, cruelty on the wetlands... Defenceless birds. Defenceless birds, yeah. And, And the thing that you see out there that's very noticeable between duck shooters and rescuers is the shooters have absolutely no empathy for the suffering that those birds are forced to endure. They're just objects. They have no feeling. They just have no understanding of the pain that those birds go through. Where rescuers are out there for the opposite reason, they do have an empathy for what those birds feel. And that's why they put their lives at risk. Look, wounded birds, a lot of wounded birds, say threatened species, they go back to Melbourne after being treated by the mobile veterinary clinics, which can only do a certain amount. They'll go back to the Lord Smith Animal Hospital and they'll look after them, they'll x-ray them, and the birds will often move on to Melbourne Zoo, where the zoo operate, take care of them, or Healesville Sanctuary, who do the same thing. And those birds that can be released after recuperating are then flight tested out at Healesville Sanctuary to make sure they can fly before being released. It only takes a second for shooters to pull the trigger, but it can take months and months of operations 
and rehabilitation to get those birds back into a position where they can be released again. It's hard to fathom in this day and age, in 2016, why a Labor Party still supports that violence and cruelty. And of course, when leading up to the election last year, the Labor Party is really angry with us because we were running campaigns based on the fact that Labor supports male gun violence and cruelty to native water birds. And that's the thing that really upset them. But it's a true statement. They don't want to face it. Yet they're willing to have laws that force rescuers into court to f- pay fines. Yes, uh, yes. I, I'd I, hate to think how many fines you've paid. Well, I've got about five, well, seven, haven't paid. Con- seven convictions over the years. But this year I was fined $750. And also um, I was banned from the wetlands for six months. So the fines are getting tougher. The thing that disappoints me about the Labor Party, I always believe that once male-dominated political parties got more women in there, they would have more compassionate policies. That hasn't changed in the Labor Party, and they've got nine women in Cabinet. And that's disappointing. So I'm just hoping that those women in Cabinet will have an influence on Daniel Andrews by not having a duck shooting season this year and banning it forever. And on the other hand, you've got another wonderful woman, Lynn White. Yes, and and the government must have been doing handstands knowing that I'd been banned from the, the wetlands for six months. Then they would have got Lynn White's media release saying that she was going to stand in for me and you couldn't get a better campaigner. Lynn White is an ex-police officer. Well, she is the best anti-cruelty campaigner in Australia today. And I just feel honoured that she's taken on that role. But it's not the end for you. No, it's not the end for me. I'll be working just as hard behind the scenes, supporting Lynn, and we'll keep going until duck shooting is banned in Australia. And, And I think with Lynn White getting involved in the campaign this year, it will take the campaign on into a new dimension. And I think we'll be closer now than ever before in being able to win this issue. And also this year, the RSPCA will have their big mobile veterinary clinic out there. So they're getting more involved as well. So I think it's looking good for native waterbirds. Animals Australia is the biggest animal protection group in the country and uh, uh, and they'll be fighting it with, with all the force they have. Uh, and Lynn White's done a fantastic job on exposing the greyhound industry, exposing the live cattle export industry and she'll do a fantastic job putting pressure on the Victorian government this year. Just looking back over those 30 years, Laurie, how does it feel? Spending all that time protecting our wonderful waterbirds. Well, going into the campaign, I had no idea that I'd still be doing it in 30 years. Actually, we came close to getting it banned when Joan Kerner was Conservation Minister. It all depended on the New South Wales election in 1988 because Labor lost the election up there. Labor didn't do anything in Victoria. But... By 1990, Labor was in 
serious trouble. Because Joan Kerner-Roy said, bring the numbers of duck shooters down and we'll get rid of it. But by 1990, Labor was in trouble with Tricontinental and Pyramid and a few things like that, and it never happened. We fought the Kennett years. We fought Kennett all the way through. Then when Brax got in, we thought there was hope, but we found that dealing with the Labor Party was different to dealing with the Labor Party in the 80s. Labor in the 1980s always respected stirrers and people who were campaigning on issues, even if you were campaigning against them. They still respected campaigners. The new Labor Party adopted the Liberal model that if you were campaigning against them, you were the enemy that had to be destroyed. And that's how they've always worked. So we haven't had a close relationship at all with the Labor Party since Brax came to office. We've always had a lot of support from Labor Party members. And Labor Party members would like to see duck shooting banned. Over the years, we've spoken to 30 Labor branches. 29 of those branches wanted duck shooting banned, including Williamstown, which was Brax's own branch. But nothing ever happened. And Labor Party members used to say that the political wing of the Labor Party doesn't listen to them. It's all about branch stacking these days and uh, and the factional power brokers have got their numbers tied up that way. So Labor members don't really count that much. That's what Labor members are saying. Also, Labor's Environment Policy Committee, in the lead-up to the 2014 election put up a motion to ban duck shooting and it went through unanimously. But as soon as the political wing of the Labor Party heard about it, they closed down the policy committee and it didn't reopen again until after the election. So the members who put up that motion to ban duck shooting surprisingly didn't get back onto the policy committee. The political wing even sees the, their own members as being the enemy if they support a ban on duck shooting. Very sad, isn't it? It is. And that's the wonderful Laurie Levy, who for 30 years has been campaign director for the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. Add your voice to choirs and musicians, including special guest Dan Sultan and MC Corinne Grant. Speakers include former asylum seeker Nazir Yousafi and a range of faith and community leaders. Stand with people from all over Melbourne to demand the closure of camps on Manus and Nauru and freedom and permanent protection for refugees. Starting with music from 1.30pm, followed by speakers at 2pm, join us for the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. March 20th at the State Library on Swanson Street. Organised by the Refugee Advocacy Network, a 3CR supporter. I'm speaking now with Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake. The language of litter, what do you mean by that, Neil? We really need to be um, ramp up the urgency, I think, uh, when we're talking about litter because, uh, as people increasingly aware, the... Uh, amount of plastics getting into our oceans is actually uh, quite a disaster and uh, uh, it's only going to increase as uh, more and more plastics get produced globally. Unless we change our attitudes and our behaviour with regard to um, plastic uh, litter in particular, then uh, there's going to be uh, just increasing toxic pollution getting into our food chain. 
Not wanting to sound like doom and gloom here, Jan, <laughs> but let's get real here. So where is the plastics coming from? Well, quite a lot of it is single-use sort of uh, items that are from food and beverages, uh, you know, lolly wrappers and those sort of things. So uh, quite a bit of it is that sort of stuff, straws, um, coffee cup lids, um, plastic bags, cellophane wrap and that surround cigarette packs, all of that sort of stuff. And none of it breaks down? Well, it breaks up into smaller and smaller parts, but over time it just gets more easily ingested by wildlife. And the other thing is it actually attracts toxins from the water column that it happens to be in too, which you might say is a good thing, but it's not such a good thing for the wildlife that swallow it. Can you explain that last little bit again? Uh, It attracts um, contaminants like DDT and other uh, oil-based toxins that might have escaped into the waterways as well um, because they have a a natural affinity being oil, both uh, plastics being oil-based products too. Uh, and so in that sense, um, if if any animal does happen to swallow that, they're not just swallowing the plastic and having a, something that might block their gut, but it's also taking in those toxins. Uh, and uh, down, down further down the track, um, as plastic ages and gets colonised by various uh, small microorganisms, etc., it will actually sink and eventually settle on the, on the seabed, and which is where it's likely to be picked up by the mollusk family that go hoovering through the sediments to, for their food. And uh, so they'll be ingesting that too, and they're really quite billions of them that they get eaten by fish and seabirds, so etc. So it goes up the food chain. Bio, bioaccumulates, yeah, so... It's really the staggering volumes of the plastic that is the concern, though. You know, like we're, we're currently producing 300 million tonnes annually uh, around the globe, and that's predicted to increase enormously exponentially over the next 10 years. So, uh, as I say, if we don't change our, the way we manage plastics and particularly dispose of it, that's a lot more that's just going to be getting into our oceans and uh, ultimately polluting our food chain. Is this a slow death for the fish and the birds who ingest it? I guess, uh, yeah, you could say it's a slow death, um, but uh, not so much for the uh, chicks that get fed it, such as the albatross chicks, etc. You know, so it's not so slow. It's all relative, isn't it? The concern is, though, that um, a lot of the good work that's being done in cleaning up litter and plastics, etc., isn't really um, recording accurately exactly what those items are. You know, so... Some of the national programs actually might call group things as user items or consumer items without actually nailing down what sort of items they are, whether they were plastic straws or whether they're plastic shopping bags, uh, those kind of things. So if we don't actually get that level of detail, then it's very hard to actually campaign to, for example, say, let's not use plastic shopping bags anymore. Why are we actually... Um, providing plastic straws for, with, with these beverages that are sold in fast food outlets when there might be an alternative such as paper ones available. If we don't have that detail, we, we haven't got an argument. So where are you pushing to get that, um, those details there? Well, what I'm uh, hoping to do is to talk to quite a number of groups that are actually collecting data and uh, there are some, some great work being done just to get them to refine the way they record what they're collecting. And I hope to trial this uh, 
audit method, which is uh, focusing not on uh, litter generally, because litter could include things like icy pole sticks, for example. They're not all that harmful to the environment. You know, they're, they're basically just going to float around and become part of the organic uh, matter that's in the oceans. Whereas there are a particular group of um, litter items, though, that are, in fact, cumulatively causing ecological harm and destruction, and they're the ones that we really need to focus on and really put them in under the spotlight so that there can be uh, some serious decision-making done as to whether or not we are still we ban them altogether or, or really restrict their use or ramp up enforcement to make sure that people are, who are littering or disposing of those items irresponsibly actually get a little bit of a penalty for that. You know, so it's, the seriousness of it is actually recognised rather than just think, oh, well, it's just another bit of litter. And this is just not a problem for Fort Phillip Bay or the rivers around Melbourne. This is a worldwide problem. That's right, it? yeah. I guess um, you know, we're relatively lucky here in the sense that we've got pretty reasonable sort of waste management systems. There are bins on the street and, uh, you know, so you might say it's a minority of people who are actually causing the problem. But the thing about Port Phillip Bay, though, is because it is such an enclosed waterway, anything that we on the streets in its catchments are likely to go into the bay and probably not escape it. So over time, and we have to look ahead, we continue to do that uh, as the population grows there's four four and a half million people live around Port Phillip Bay at the moment and it's likely to be seven million you know within the next 15 years or so so uh, we really just need to focus on making sure that uh, we keep it clean why not why wouldn't you do that why not indeed and that's the Port Phillip Baykeeper Neil Blake and he's also with the Port Phillip Eco Centre and we'll hear more from Neil on the program next week. You're listening through CR. Time is 24 minutes past five. In a moment, we'll be looking at El Salvador. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Today we focus on the mining company Oceanic Gold, in El Salvador. El Salvador is an impoverished country coming out of decades of civil war and the company is suing the country for over 300 million for denying a permit based on environmental concerns. And next week we'll be talking about the Philippines where Asiana Gold is aggressively developing a mine which has caused major human rights violation and environmental destruction. Retired Bishop Hilton Deacon was in El Salvador last year and witnessed the devastation wrought by mining. This was Hilton's second visit, the first over 10 years ago. When we spoke, I asked him about that first time in Central America. I went the first time because 
I was deeply interested in a man who had been the Archbishop of San Salvador and was murdered in 1980 and who had an extraordinary mind about a way of thinking in the Catholic tradition called liberation theology. And I had read a deal about it because I'm I'm interested in social justice affairs, I think, and I found that this man's uh, uh, lean on it was very attractive. I mean attractive in a very deep sense. And uh, I was at that stage, I think, in my life when I was looking for a few answers that I thought I might never have bothered about when I was younger. But as you get older, you sort of say, well, is this right? Is that the case? Uh, I've learned a lot about a lot of things and it's not the way it seems to be and all this sort of stuff. And I also happened to meet, and and this is the confluence of uh, of events in anybody's life, I met a man here in Melbourne. He lives actually in Brisbane still, a great and keen social justice activist, a Catholic of sorts, a very keen man with a very keen mind whom I admire very much in regard as a friend. And his name is Sean Cleary. We talked and met and talked about this issue and and, and he was keen for me to go over, for a bishop to become involved. And I was keen to become involved, and particularly with him as my companion, if that was to be the case. And that's how it all fell that first time. Just before we go on to that, what attractive for you about liberation theology? It was a way of analysing human affairs that stuck to the ground and didn't go theorising up in the air about principles and try to then make the principles come down to to earth. In other words, it worked from what was on the ground, grassroots stuff, and tried to work what a theory would be that's behind it. And, uh, of course, um, that's a particular way of thinking that is really at the base of, for instance, the whole of the scientific world. It's more complicated than that, but uh, and it was very strongly based on what for me were terribly important, which were gospel imperatives at the same time. And he paid the ultimate price. Of course he did. As Mm. well as many others. Many thousands of others, and the country is still paying the price, yes. What was it like when you arrived there those years ago? I was surprised in a sense. Um, I read a lot about it before I went. I I was given some very good books books about Oscar Romero, books about the country, etc., and it it struck me as I was... should be expecting a typical former colonised country, but colonised in the Spanish manner, not the English manner like we've got here in Australia. And it is different, of course. And there would be a Catholicity there that would be highly Hispanic in all sorts of ways, signs and symbols. I'm an anthropologist by training, by the way, so it was my anthropological mind that was looking at all of this. And when I got there, I landed in a a modern airport, a fairly modern airport, slightly untidy, but uh, modern. And when I got into a car, uh, some people picked us up, went down streets where there were ordinary houses. Uh, people were obviously not Anglo-Saxon Celts, but uh, it had certain differences, but not altogether. And that was the first surprise that I got, but a pleasant surprise, I must and I meant that I was familiar with lots of things. But the more I stayed there and the first time I ate food, I realised I was somewhere else. And it went on like that for about, well, how long were we there? About three and a half weeks, I think. We spent some time there and some time in Guatemala. And what were you doing in those weeks you were in El Salvador? We visited a few communities. We had some very good contacts and, and Sean was the wonderful man who had these contacts people who were uh, fighting for 
the sort of uh, democracy and independence that they weren't getting. They hadn't uh, had it given to them by the Spanish uh, and that they were constantly being harassed by American imperialism. I mean, the American military influence in the country was enormous. I began to learn that the country was a very poor country. You turned on a tap and you didn't get the water you wanted and all this sort of stuff. And the people lived in very poor houses away from the, the, the town, the city of San Salvador. Wonderful people every time. I loved meeting them. It was just so extraordinary. I don't think I could ever have kept the common sense that they seemed to have all of the time. But I, I began to notice, um, for instance, that I'd pick up the papers, for instance, and I, I can't read Spanish and I can't read um, any language there in El Salvador with the common languages and so on. But every day there were murders in the country. And I started asking, how's, how's this going? And, and they told me, and I'm always um, very cautious about universal comments about anything, but they said this is the country that has more murders per person per population than any other country in the world, which is an extraordinary claim to make, but it seemed to be true. It just went on in the city and in the country all over the place. And this was in a country that was supposed to be Catholic Christian. And I said, what the blazes is going on with this? And the second day, uh, one of our hosts said, you must come to the cemetery. It'll tell you something. We, we went up into the hills. There were hills all around the place in San Salvador. We got up to this where this cemetery was. And there was a big um, fence around it, brick fence and gates and things. And it was quite big, quite a large place. I couldn't see how big it was, as a matter of fact. But you had to get in th uh, with a guard uh, letting you in. I can't remember whether we paid for entry. I, I suspect we might have, but I can't remember it. We got inside. And the first thing I noticed, there was a little tram track that was inside the, the gate. And there, standing there, was a, a little tram with a one little carriage that would hold a, a few and, and so on. This was the tram track that uh, the rich people would come in, get into the tram, and then be taken to the tomb or tombs where their relatives were to visit them, put their flowers on board and then come back. I thought, we have, that's a touch we haven't had yet in places in Australia, so that's something. The graves were sumptuous. Uh, this is not right for a poverty-driven country like this big tombs and all this. No, it was the cemetery for the rich people, as it turned out. And this is what I was told. Uh, I've never been able to verify it. I tell the first story because that's the one I was told. And the, the rich people are something, I don't know how many families they are, but it's, it, it might be less than ten. The, the figure that's going around in my head is five, but uh, I'm not sure. But they're, they're, these families have control of everything the army, the parliament, the finance, the whole jolly lot. And everybody else is down the bottom. They're the poor people. There was very little of a middle class that you could talk about that, you know, very often in, in sociological terms is, is the place where you find stability for a community, not altogether attractive because it might be terribly liberal in our terms all the time and some people might like labour. But I was beginning to notice differences You'd go into a church and it would be very Spanish. But there'd be Spanish images of the Madonna, for instance. In our churches here in Australia, it's nearly all French. It's interesting, isn't it? They're nearly all of French origin. 
the uh, images of Jesus uh, were hardly of the 16th century sop that we get all over the jolly place with long hair, blue eyes and all the rest of it. But it's, uh, it, it's a type. I remember when I was doing anthropology many years ago before, before I, I earned my doctorate, I read a, a book about these countries in, uh, in South America and El Salvador would have been one of them, where if you have a shrine with a big statue of the Virgin in a place, you want to go behind it you'll find a statue of one of the gods they used to worship. <laughs> that would not have been the case everywhere, but it's the case of the leaning of the, the use of symbols and signs and tradition and all this sort of stuff, and you could make a very valid and interesting comment about things. And I was beginning to pick up this sort of stuff. Well, very within a three, two or three, we got uh, ourselves around San Salvador for a while and got a sense of things, went to a radio station, went to a newspaper place, went and met a few people who were strong people in the community, met the the new uh, Archbishop of San Salvador and so on, and made a few contests, let the people know that there, there was an Australian bishop, which is a country far away. Uh, they thought it might have been Austria, but <laughs> it spelt a bit more uh, lengthwise, so there it was. But when it got out of the country, the poverty hit you. The, these were people that you never saw in Australia, peasants. No education, very little money, food was limited range of stuffs. And, of course, at the back of it all, no freedom, uh, no sense of democracy in the way that one would expect. Now, they're the sort of experiences I had the whole time. Then when I, we moved out a bit and got away into the countryside, we went and had a look at a few mines. I was interested in this because I, I had understood from my reading that mining was one of the curses that Western economic culture had imposed upon El Salvador and that one of the cornerstones of it was in Melbourne, Australia, a place called... Uh, Osana Gold, and uh, they were linked up with uh, Pacific Rim, uh, another another uh, one, and, and and so on and so forth. And I went and, and at the, on that first visit went to I can't remember how many, four or five of the mines and the rivers. I was interested in the rivers more than the mines, and the the rivers had been, they were yellow, nothing alive along them. And they used to have little hut, mud huts, people living on them where they used to go down and wash and drink the water. All itself very primitive, but nothing like this. Nothing, nothing was alive. I think even, uh, I tried to follow a blowfly to see if it would land on the water and, like, and have a bit of a drink and then flop dead. But of course the water was all cyanide-induced stuff that was coming out of the mines, washing the gold out. And uh, that impressed me most of all, uh, the depravity of this sort of stuff. And then the other depravity was the way it was being justified by people in the mining industry who were saying this was all good for the country, etc. And you'd say, well, where is that? So that's the general impression I had. That, And when I went into Guatemala, it was just the same, only a bit bigger because Guatemala's a bigger country. And you think that people in both of those countries were part of a civil war for decades, yet the people gained nothing. Absolutely nothing. They were promised land, they were promised peace. But Exactly right. They, they still have that spirit of uh, rebellion in them. I, I went to groups, I went to meetings, and a couple of meetings, I, look, I, was, I was asked to go there and maybe spend an hour, and I spent a whole day. I couldn't get away, I didn't want to. 
these people had it in their gut that they wanted stuff that here was I getting for breakfast back in Australia was not for them. What were the people's memories of Bishop Romero at that time? Well, he'd been dead 30, 40 years, uh, 30 years or whatever it was. The memory was becoming sanctified somewhat. They were talking about the holy man and all this sort of stuff. And so there was this type of thing going on. Of course, I do believe... I wouldn't be able to demonstrate this in in a clear way, but it's in my mind, and you ask it, I'm only giving what I think is in my mind, that there was a concerted effort to deregulate the role of Oscar Romero and question him on everything. And that deregulation, it's not a degrade, it was a a jolly, sinful, lying way of trying to uh, demonise his character. It reached as far as the Vatican And I say that not carelessly because I know particularly of one cardinal who was from South America who couldn't stand a bar of Oscar Romero and called him a communist and evil man and destroying everything. And this man came from Colombia. I remember a story was told to me, so I only have it as was told to me, but it was told to me by another cardinal of the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. So you say to yourself, well, there you go. And this was the story. He was a South American and he was in Colombia and some priests from the diocese where this other cardinal came from wanted to see him because he was a younger cardinal. And they said to him, Cardinal, we wonder if you would tell the Pope something. The Pope was John Paul II. They told him that this Cardinal in Rome had made contact with drug runners to tell them who were the priests in the diocese that were fighting the drug running. And there were, I think, three in particular. And within uh, a month or two of that being told, the three of them were dead, shot. Now, there's a lot of causality that has to be established right along the story of that story. And these men had the documentation in letters that they'd gained. How they got them, I don't know. What was in the letters, I now don't know. But uh, the cardinal said, I saw them, and they gave me. It wasn't a big sheaf, but it was a... They said, would you give these to the Pope? And this man went and saw the Pope. Cardinals can do this, apparently. He said, uh, Holy Father, I've got these from these priests and uh, they would like you to read them. Thank you very much, said the Pope. And he waited. He was on a number of committees in Rome, so he was flying across there four or five times a year. The man who was in charge of the papal household was always a man, and he was an archbishop. Everybody who's a potentate of some sort has had these sort of people running the house make sure the food's in the kitchen and the lifts are working and all that sort of stuff. And he was an American. This cardinal saw him, he said, uh, what do I do? And the man said, I will contact you when the Pope makes up his mind what he wants to do. Well, my friend went back to Rome about four times. Not, a, not anything, not anything. Then the fifth time, he, he went to a, an open-air canonization where a man is it was a man i think it was a man was declared a saint by the pope and the pope at this stage was quite frail but he he came out he was physically a pretty brave sort of a chap 
And anyway, the cardinals sat in, in, in rows and the Pope was way up the front of it and there were 500,000 people just down in the piazza, way, all, all together. And, and this young cardinal went into this row and all of a sudden this old cardinal, the one that had uh, supposedly or allegedly had contacted the uh, drug runners, he turned up and he sees him and he comes right over to, walks over to him very carefully and stands right in front of him, and, and he's in the second row of this cardinal because he's a junior, and in the front there was a cardinal, and, and they made room for this man because he was a senior cardinal from the Curia, that's the government of the Vatican. And this cardinal said to the, my friend, Pagarai, Pagarai, and he said it three times, and each time was more vehement, Pagarai. Pagarai means you will pay and walked back to his place, and he was in the front row way up near the Pope. And I said, what did you do then? And he said, well, I sat down, and the next thing, a, a senior cardinal said, leaned over to him and said, what was that all about? And my friend said, bingo. <laughs> he knew what had happened. The Pope had got, it, got at this cardinal and apparently either read the riot act to him, but did it in the Roman fashion, behind the scenes. But that cardinal, who was a, a troglodyte from the cave times, um, eventually died, you know, and left. The first sign that Oscar Romero had broken through the ranks of all of that was with a, a, a chap called Pope Francis. And he said, I want to beatify him. That is making blessed, which is the one below being a... And he is now blessed Oscar Romero. And I, and I said to myself, two things this Pope ought to do if he's going to be any good, and one of them was to beatify Oscar Romero. He's done the other thing too, so <laughs> but I, I won't talk about it. So that's the story. They're, they're the sort of things that go to make up my experience of El Salvador. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station. I'm Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with retired Bishop Hilton Deacon about his visits to Latin America. Now, when you came back that first time, how did you publicise what you'd seen and been told? I did that through Sean because uh, I'm on the edge of things uh, and um, can't remember whether I was already retired when I went, but I think I might have been, so whatever it was. And so I don't have the normal channels and people don't listen to me very much in the normal channels because they want to hear about you know, other things, I think. But I got the the word got around, and, and and I wasn't slow in coming forward talking about it from time to time. I thought I might have talked about it here, in the last time we were here some years ago. But uh, I don't remember what it was, uh, and we might have been talking about East Timor. I can't remember. Or Sri Lanka. Or Sri Lanka. Yes, that might have been it too. That's another story too. <laughs> Yes, that's the way. I mean, you've hit upon it, Jan. That's the way I, I, I tend to sort of pass these things around. What was the opportunity to go back again late last year? Well, the opportunity was not an opportunity, really. Oscar was going to be made blessed at a special ceremony in San Salvador. Now, that's a, a big promotion for a dead man <laughs> to be made a blessed. And he was a man who was one of my heroes, really. And I said, I'm going to save up my money. 
I had about a year to save it up and I, I went around saving up on food bills because I'm on a bit of a pension and all this sort of stuff and some people gave me a bit of money. Anyway, anyway I eventually got enough money to get the, across and lo and behold, Sean Cleary said, I'm coming too. So we both went again to El Salvador and Guatemala. Tell us about El Salvador. Had it changed at all? I wouldn't have thought so, except uh, they've now got a blessed that they didn't have, and that's a big change, really. It's in the collective psyche of the people that one of their one of their citizens has made it uh, into that rarefied atmosphere. But economically, no, socially, I, I, I didn't. I think it's probably got worse. Uh, it, it's got better in a sense that I think uh, since the last time, the government is a little more careful about what it does. Uh, it's still. Uh, not as principled as we would hope that it would be, and uh, there are still poor people all over the place. But, um, oh, you see new cars around and new houses, but then you see the poor people still out there. And then the other, one of the other things, simple little things, they're finding they're not being able to get much fresh water because it's all being poisoned by the mining dictates, putting their rubbish water. A simple little thing like that, but, but on top of that, there are uh, hundreds of little huts, mud huts and little houses that are now deserted and crumbling away because the rivers and, and or the creeks, really, that they live by are poisoned. They can't stay there. They can't drink the water. They've got to go somewhere else. Where do they go? Well, they're in other hovels somewhere else. I can remember the head of Friends of the Earth for El Salvador talking maybe 10, 15 years ago saying... The water supply there was dire and that the water table had gone down so far because of the lack of water, the yes. taking the water from the water table. You're saying now it's far worse than that. I'm not, I, I wasn't aware of what that really meant and I, and I can't say whether it's worse or not, but it's very, very bad. How worse have you got to be to be beyond very, very bad? I went down and even touched some of the water and then I had a bit of water to wash it all away and I'd look over the little creek ridges and down at the water. It, it was dreadful muck. In Guatemala, for instance, which was next door, but it's all part of the same hegemony, really, there's a huge place there of mining. They've gone right down and deep into the mine and they've destroyed a valley and uh, they've put in grass and all this sort of stuff. And it really is, to me, it's a big joke. It's not only that, but the people have fought back and they've played a, another price, haven't they? Well, people we, being killed, tortured. We haven't touched that but I, because that will have to be the other three quarters of this program. People have reacted. And some of the people are very careful, conscientious and analytical men and women who are peasants but who've learnt how to read and they read what's in magazines and papers and and they are articulate. I mean, they just fill themselves up with the theory of things, what they think ought to be the case in the collective vision of things for the, the people that they're not getting in any shape or form. They're being treated like animals and all this sort of stuff. And every other day you hear of somebody who's either disappeared or their bodies have been found somewhere murdered and have, they have something to do with mining protestations or mining activities or whatever. Did you find the, the mine where Oceana Gold? Uh, well, I, I went to two of them. I'm always 
second on all of this at the second level. My information had to come from someone, and Sean was able to show. We went to one in particular, and it was awful. It's open cut, is it? Yeah, well, well no, um, I will, I'm trying to remember now because I saw so many mines. There was the, the, the river creaky thing that was yellow, and it was filthy, and there were no houses or huts near the place, and there were in whole entries into uh, whole H O L E whole entries into the side of the mountains. Where now, whether it was open cut, I, I, I'm not sure whether it might have been, but we would, wouldn't have been allowed to see it because there were fences everywhere. But I, I was ashamed of it, and you, you develop a shame that you regret and wish you'd never have to experience because it was people in my country who were making money out of this and spending it down Collins Street in the casinos and in the big frock shops and all this sort of stuff. And uh, their, their main office is down there in Collins Street, Melbourne. That's what I was ashamed of. Tell me about some of the people that you and Sean spoke with. Because Sean's a Spanish speaker, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he is, and his uh, his wife is uh, El Salvadorian too, uh, and he's got a, a mind uh, that ticks on this in a way that mine doesn't. Because well, mine's I suppose wider, but it's not as deep either on that score. We stayed with various people. One or two of them were priests. Uh, I remember one mining. I can't remember the name of the mining company. It's a Spanish name or whatever. But this priest was there, and he was um, a European. He could have been a Flemish priest or a Belgian, somebody like that. And he was an extraordinary man. He had this house, which was an, had been there for some centuries, three or four centuries, had been a convent, and there was a church behind it, and uh, he had rooms in it, and he was putting up about 10 or 15 young people, and I mean by young people, 15, 20 and all that sort of stuff working here and there and they would eat their food there and the food and I, I was there for about four days, I don't know where Sean was uh, for about four or five days and the food was very primitive it, it's food that keeps you alive but beans you know, and rice yeah, well, that sort of stuff you know uh, I was looking for fresh fruit and wondering where it was and all this type of stuff. But anyway, I was very grateful, but I was more grateful for the company that I was given. A lot of them couldn't speak English. He could speak English quite well. And talk about a man who was just strengthened with what he understood to be the, the heart of the gospel message. We talked about that because I, I, I told him, I said, you know, if you go read the sayings of Jesus, 75% of it, I think, 75% is about social justice. Not about all the other things, but about social justice. And I said, he didn't say too much anyway. People think he said, he, he spoke the whole Bible. He didn't. We talked about these things. And of course, during this time, I went to some masses in the church. Well, I went into another world. And for an anthropologist, it was just sheer poetry. It went on for about an hour and 20 minutes it was a Sunday, and there were two masses, and I thought I'd go to two of them to compare them, and they were very similar. Church was packed. It would have held about 450 people, men, women, lots of women, and lots of youth. And all of that is itself striking. And the first half of the, of the time, say about 35 minutes, was given over to scripture readings, singing, 
and uh, what they what we would call confessional times or reconciliation, uh, talking about how wicked they've been the previous week. And I was thinking to myself, the wickedness would be perpetrated by other people upon them, surely. But no, here they were saying, we are sorry, Lord. And, and the music was just... Oh. I wished I'd had a, a recorder, but it wasn't. It, it, they started using some of the tribal language. Uh, not all of it. A lot of it is uh, Spanish, um, mestizo Spanish, and the tribal language. And, 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 and the, the, the tonality in it was just riveting. And women got up and, you know, they were great leaders in, uh, in, in, in all of this expression of stuff. I'd come out of that, of that after an hour and, and 20 minutes, hour and a half, you know, just dazed with the, no, the sheer novelty of it all, the intense challenge of it all, and the extraordinary depth of it all. Just absolutely wonderful. Now, that church, it happened twice on a Sunday, and then there was another day, which was what we, what we call in lingo a minor feast day. Some saint whom I never knew, and they were full again doing something like the same thing. The children able to go to school in those areas? Yes, there are schools. But, you know, um, they're not schools like you see schools here in, in Australia. For instance, um, they might be working, they might not be working, they might be there for early morning and until 10 o'clock and then go home or whatever. I don't really know. The, the control of the schools is... I think it's probably strong in some places and it's not, not there in some others and there are no schools in some other places. Let me, talking about schools, let me give you one little story. I went along one creek river, filthy, absolutely filthy, and there had been a community of about 400 people living down the banks of this little place. And here on the top of the banks was this school. The river was in a terrible mess. No sign of human habitation anywhere. They'd all deserted and gone. Now, the mining company, which is this Oceana Gold Company, built a school on, up on the bank, a modern school, modules and all that sort of stuff. Not a child anywhere. Yes, it hadn't been used because I asked somebody, when was it a school? Oh, a couple of years ago. They wanted to show that they were doing good things for us, so they built the school. But, you see, the people couldn't stay in the area because of the dirt and filth of, uh, of the river. So the school was left there like that. And I thought to myself, this is the awful contradiction in, in all of this so-called goodness that's going on. And then once they were stopped or they didn't get the, the permit they wanted, they sued. Are you talking about the present situation? Mm. Yes. Well, that's a very complicated story, as a matter of fact, and, and I'm not familiar with the acronyms and the details of this, but, but the mining companies, and, and um, Oceania Gold was one of them, were stopped from uh, mining because the government, the democratic government decided this has got to stop. You're killing our people, you're killing the environment, you're killing everything. They appealed against it. One can find uh, the record of all these things, and, and I, I, I just don't, I'm too old, I just don't remember it. But what I do remember is that the mining companies decided they were going to sue the government, and one of them is Oceana Gold uh, and Pacific Rim people, and all, all, they're all involved in this. Uh, they have decided to sue them for $310 million to um, pay back for all the damage they've done in lack of trade and lack of development and progress in the mining sector. 
No, I don't know that that's uh, been resolved at all. I don't think it has been, as a matter of fact. And, and it's typical of the greed that uh, the, the economic gospel is able to produce for the modern world of people who think the only message is dollars. Did you go to Mexico as well? No, not this time. No. Chiapas? Uh, I, 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 I went to Mexico in Chiapas uh, uh, about 15 years ago. That was not the same trip? No, 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 it was another trip. Okay. I, I actually went with my sister, who was uh, is, is a nun, and she's quite seriously ill at the present time. And uh, she wanted to go to Mexico, and I said I did too. So I saved, took a year to save up for the both of us, and we had a ball. We went, we went. We, uh, I met the bishop, Sammy, uh, Sammy Ruiz of Chiapas. He was a Dominican, a wonderful man. Not altogether the uh, uh, favourite of, uh, of the Vatican uh, setup, but but he was a brilliant fellow. But he's dead now, and things have changed, and all that sort of thing. But he was part of the picture of the liberation theology people. It lasted for a fair while, didn't it? Then they got beaten down, or is it still still there underground, the liberation theology? I think it's become more respectable. And, and, and given what's happened in the world, I think anything that makes a little bit of sense out of what we believe in, in a new way for new minds in a new world will always be read, and I think liberation theology is one of them. There are people who are so conservatively minded, they think that liberation theology is a preamble to reading any books about communism, which is, to me, a lot of tosh, really hogwash stuff. It's very serious. You may have to uh, localise it in certain historical eras and times eventually, as you do with all of the other theologies and give them exactly the same relativity that they really should be given and not the absolutism that the people often claim them to have. No, liber- liberation theology has got something to say. We, we move on because the human mind moves on. I mean, uh, you and I know that what's happening now in the world, what's happening here in Melbourne, for instance, is changing because people don't understand the stuff we used to talk about. The categories have gone. I mean about most things, not just about church and religion and all that, and so we've got to think think hard again. And that's retired Bishop Hilton Deacon, who spent many, many years working for social justice in many countries around the world, including here. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now.